0: Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. Dr. Tupa Gera is the professor of ancient studies at Israel Bible Center, and she is the newest member of our faculty team. She is a historian who specializes in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you attend our monthly live seminars, you will be very familiar with her work and insights into Second Temple writings. And if you don't get notices about those seminars, click on the link in the episode notes to stay connected. Dr. Gera has a new course coming out this year about good and evil in Qumran. I'm very excited about this course, but I didn't want to wait for it to come out before getting a preview. So I invited Dr. Guerra to join me here on the podcast for an exclusive look at what is coming. But before we get to the course content, I asked her about how she became interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. As a historian, what drew her into such a rich theological body of texts? It,
1: yeah, it's it's kind of funny because uh, when I started studying history, I was mostly like, "Oh, I will never study uh, religion because it's the most boring theme someone can study," and <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Oh, how so many of us have said, never ever will I ever. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, we say in, in Portuguese, you say you are paying your tongue uh-huh. because you, you need to pay what you said. So that's basically what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I started doing my undergraduate, and there was a research group that used to work with um Hellenistic studies. And I was like, Yeah, sounds like a nice, interesting subject to go. In Brazil, when you study history. We don't separate like at the university. Study kind of all history, so you do ancient, medieval, modern, Brazilian, and so on. So the it's a very it's a more general approach to history, and then you can specialize more, and you get to the masters or PhD. And in this group, there was one of the meetings we were discussing the past and stuff, and we're working with Vladimir Prop, which is a a, a scholar who works with fairy tales. And he had this idea of organizing fairy tales and how there was this danger of the first contact between a woman and a man that often appears in fairy tales, especially in Russian fairy tales. And I found fascinating. And another friend who was in the group, he was like, oh, we actually have this in the Bible. I was like, what? Do you, what? And he was like, yeah, in the book of Tobit. And of course, it's the Catholic Bible. So the book of Tobit is part of it. And he was like, yeah, in the Bible, you have the book of Tobit. And in the book of Tobit, there is this danger of the first night that there is a demon that can ki- kill all the husbands of Sarah. And I was like, OK, interesting. I think I want to study that. <laughs> and <laughs> that's where I, I started to go through the things. So uh, undergraduate and master's was were focused on the Book of Tobit and this danger of the first night of the wedding and how it appears in other Jewish sources. And was it a Jewish, does it look like a Jewish history or does it look like some myths from other cultures and trying to figure out, which is kind of interesting because the Book of Tobit is the oldest version we have of something like this. And of course, it's a demon who kills the 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 grooms and during my master, someone told me why don't you study demons because there isn't that much study on demons and I was like okay interesting and then there was a <clears throat> opportunity of a scholarship in Birmingham with someone who studied the scrolls with Charlotte Hample and she was like what do you want to say I was like the book of Tobit that's my thing I've been working with the book of Tobit and she was like it's not really my thing do you have any other interests and I remember being very nervous about it, like, oh, can I say demons? It is OK to, to study demons. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, yeah, totally. But I, and I was also very nervous about like, oh, I, I don't know the Dead Sea Scrolls much. I knew some things about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it wasn't my speciality. My supervisor from the master said, well, you know, you never know something before you study it. So if you go into your PhD, you will know something. And we're like, yeah, they make sense. Why not? And that's how I end up on the Dead Sea Scrolls.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That What a story. So you came to the Dead Sea Scrolls through the demons. And then now you've specialized in the Dead Sea Scrolls just in general. It's such a huge
1: body of literature that covers such diverse timelines too. And historians love written stuff. We we tend to really like written stuff. So, oh, texts, that's Our paradise. It's so nice to have it. The study of Dead Sea Scrolls, it's a fairly new
0: area because they were only discovered a few decades ago. What can you tell us that is kind of new in the field? What is still
1: going on? Where are scholars focusing attention as they're looking at the scrolls? So, as I said, it's a very new area. And not only was discovered in 47. But the full publication of the scroll, so all the scrolls only became available to the to the majority of scholars in the 90s. So it's yeah, it's even like it's not very long, it's not a long time ago. So we still have plenty of scrolls that never had some like attention only for that scroll, uh, unless of course we haven't one edition of most of them. We have one edition, but one edition is not enough. And There is still field to research so much. And of course, uh, because the scrolls are comprised of texts that are in what we call the Bible today, and there are some that would classify as apocrypha, there is still a lot to be done into the relationships between those texts and the many ways of practice Jewish religion in the ancient times. And also, there is a big debate now about the where the scrolls came from because it's a bit of a gray area of how they were how they dig them, how they bought them. So there is a lot of controversy about are all of them actually ancient texts and shall we should look at provenance more. So this is a big topic right now and about the ethics of how to work with these texts. Does that mean that since the discovery there might be some that are
0: false texts?
1: Yeah, we we are thinking about that maybe some of the texts that we consider part of the group may be forgeries. And this is very early. Uh, we tend to say that particularly the scrolls that surfaced after the 2000s are less reliable because there was a group of texts that started to come up after the 2000s. And the Museum of the Bible ones are very famous about it. And they all they recognize that all of them, those are fakes are all forgeries but after that a lot of scholars started to ask themselves okay but how about the old ones the ones we consider that are all uh great not all of them because that's the thing it was such a convoluted moment the way they found the scrolls and we have to think 47 the second world war had just finished we have Israel kind of being formed and all the the things that happened there and all the wars that happened there. So it's it's a difficult moment. And some of the scrolls, they weren't really excavated by like professional archaeologists or something like that. That's not necessarily a problem, but we should, we are just like, shall we look a bit more critically at them from the material point of view? Because uh historians and other scholars and theologians do that a lot too. We tend to look at the text and only what's written, which is great. But then we're like, shall we look at artifacts themselves and maybe ask, are they all part of things? This is really important
0: because of how the scrolls were found and then collected. To refresh your memory, one of the origin stories for the discovery was that there was a shepherd who stumbled upon a cave that had scrolls inside the cave while he was looking for a lost sheep. This sparked a huge interest from the archaeological and scholarly world that responded by excavating the ancient site of Qumran, which was nearby, while also looking for more caves that had more scrolls. And some of the scrolls were wrapped in fabric. Some were in Jars, Some were stacked on each other. The Palestine Archaeological Museum, which is now called the Rockefeller Archaeological Museum, was the collection spot for these ancient documents. Anyone who had found a scroll or a portion of a scroll was paid to turn them over to the scholars. Now, not being stupid, some who found these huge scrolls ripped the documents apart in order to have several pieces to turn in. It was a crazy time, and the scholars did figure it out, and they did change how they rewarded people for the documents to try to preserve the larger pieces. So, as Dr. Garris said, there is a material side to studying the scrolls, the actual parchment or papyrus, the fabric they were wrapped in, the clay jars. Those can all be analyzed to help us figure out the puzzle of where the scrolls came from. And then there is the actual site of Qumran that gained popularity due to the nearby caves. And this is something I'm interested in. What is the connection between the site where people lived, Qumran, and the scrolls in the nearby caves? I just want to touch on the material culture part because when I take groups of people and I have students and we go to Israel and we're standing at Qumran, which is very famous for having several surrounding caves in which the scrolls were found, scrolls and fragments of parchment. Um, I always tell everyone there's two different stories going on. There's the story of the scrolls, and then there's story about who was living at Qumran and what is the connection between those two stories? Because I think the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of came onto the historical scene with those two stories blended together. What do we know about those two stories. Like what does the material tell us about where the scrolls come from? And what do we know about the Qumran community?
1: We could do entire podcasts about both of those. Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) I know it's really complicated. (laughs) Most of the things we are going to discuss, we can do entire podcasts about it. Exactly. (laughs) And it's interesting because at first when they discovered the scrolls in the caves, they didn't thought that the, the settlement was related to the scrolls. So the first idea was like, Okay, we have the caves and we have that settlement that has nothing to do with the caves. After not so long, so much time passed, they kind of realized that they might might have a connection. And so they started to dig the settlement and there's still a lot of debate. What was the settlement? Because it's not very clear from the archaeological findings what precisely was, but Right at the beginning, one of the first scrolls that came out, of course, you have the Great Isaiah scroll, which is a beautiful scroll. And I say that and people listening to might not realize, but it's really beautiful. Like the, the letters are well crafted and it's nice to look at. And it's, of course, it's a huge scroll that survived almost entirely. So that's also nice to see. Most of the scrolls I work are like tiny pieces. So this one, it's... But other than the Isaiah scroll, there was also some text that talked about this community. At the beginning, a lot of scholars went to, oh, so we found these scenes. Because there was ancient texts from Josephus and others called, other authors from ancient times talking about there was this group of Jewish people called the scenes who lived in the desert. And they thought, okay, we have text in the desert, we have a community, so we found the scenes. So the scene hypothesis was really, really big for a while, especially because we didn't have all the scrolls published. And we had mostly scrolls that related to this community published. So we thought that most scrolls were related to this community. But since all the scrolls came out, there was a lot of questions about, wait, maybe we've been a bit too quick and assume there was this word, the scenes. And of course, if people who are listening to us maybe have seen uh, documentaries like from very famous TV networks and stuff talking about the scene mystery and how the scrolls are, the scene texts, there is at least 20 years that those are being questioned already by scholars and saying, okay, we do have some texts that talk about a group of people who lived kind of isolated, but we have no proof that those are the same people that other people call with seems. So we cannot necessarily put them together. Also, we need to think more about the settlement and the scrolls. And the huge mystery of why the scrolls are in the caves, because we don't really know why. We we're trying to figure out, and there isn't much on the settlement yet. And there is a lot of, as you said, material culture and historians and archaeologists tend to not be so not go so well together which is a pity <laughs> but it's funny when you go to conferences like archaeological conferences and and historians and theologians conferences and they're talking about similar things but they're not talking to each other and because they don't talk it, it's I mean of course there is a lot of people trying to, to talk more but then uh, historians make theories about things material things without seeing the latest research from the archaeological research and then when we cross things so there is plenty of archaeological evidence showing that the community wasn't that isolated as we first thought because there's coins there is materials that came from other areas so it's impossible to consider they are they were necessarily isolated and also the whole idea that oh this is a very far away in the desert and there is there, was, there wasn't much water. And then people, wait, there is a lot of water there and depending on the, the time of the year and stuff. So the combination of the two are still a thing and we're still working on it. And it's still fascinating to try to understand why they decided to put the scrolls in the caves. And we know that they, the scrolls weren't put in the caves all at the same time. We know that. We know that they date from different periods. So they might have different people putting the scrolls in the caves, but we don't really know. And now we go back to the other problem because a lot of the caves weren't excavated by archaeologists. Archaeologists. Yeah, archaeologists. So we don't have records about how the scrolls were actually found in the caves. Was sediment on top of it? Were they excavated properly or were they lying down were they inside the jars or not inside the jars so it's a lot of questions and as as we said it's a very new field it's it's a new thing of course we can know a lot of things about it uh we talk about the things we don't know but some so just for people who are listening it doesn't mean we don't know a lot we we do know a lot we know they were a jewish group we know they um They probably had relations with other groups. We know they had sacred texts. We know they had the same sacred texts as other Jewish groups. But the other problem is we don't have this amount of texts from other Jewish groups from the same period. So we cannot compare and say, oh, actually, the Sadducees Sadducees would read something different because we don't have the texts from them. We just just have the Quran texts. And that's another fascinating thing. Yeah, it's
0: it's early days of putting together a fascinating puzzle. It's yes. just this puzzle stretches and influences our understanding in so many different kinds of fields, which does make it very exciting to keep up with what is going on. What can you tell us about the since the discovery of the scrolls and since maybe since the 90s, as more of the scrolls have been widely accessible to people? How does that influence what we know about Second Temple period Jewish culture?
1: One thing we can definitely say about the scrolls is they are from the Second Temple period. And that's one of the things we can actually say. Yes, they are from the Second Temple period. And actually, a lot of what we know about the Second Temple period comes from what we know about the scrolls, because they are the majority of texts preserved from that period. So a lot of scholars recently have been looking at the scrolls and not saying, oh, they are from this very secluded sect. And we're saying, "Okay, there is no proof that those texts weren't read by other people. And particularly because we have the text, we have the Pentateuch, we have uh, copies from all the books that are currently in Bible besides Esther. Esther is the only one missing, which is interesting. But... At the same time, we don't want to put so mu- too much weight on it because we have just fragments. So it might have copies of Esther that just got lost and we don't know. So it's hard to navigate that. But what we can say is that the scrolls are definitely like a window to the Second Temple period. It might not be the same as all the Second Temple period, all Jews in the Second Temple period would, consume and relate to, but we can for sure say they are a reliable source to understand the Judaism in the Second Temple period, especially when you see texts that have many, many copies or you have like, as I said, the Isaiah scroll and the importance of Isaiah or the importance of the Pentateuch or the importance of Jubilees and Enoch, because we have plenty of copies of those so we can tell those texts were common and important in the Second Temple period. I feel that the scrolls are really this window to the Second Temple period, and they can, they can help us understand much more of the wider community of, and Jewish communities and not necessarily just this small group in the desert. I know more about the magical part of things, so there is still a lot of debate on magic and how the ritual the ritualistic part of how these people read those texts why they write down prayers for instance because there is one thing about when you pray and there is a completely different thing to write down a prayer and what's the if you because it's a culture that it's not a written culture as we are so you don't write things necessarily to keep them because you keep them by heart so why you write things And that's a lot of questions about this part of the scrolls as well.
0: Ooh, magic. That is not something I normally think about with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we are going to have to talk more about that. Even what the term magic means for us today versus how ancient people talked about it. Did they even talk about it as magic? That is going to come next when Dr. Gera and I continue our conversation about the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you like these kind of conversations, come join us at the Israel Bible Center. You will have access to many amazing courses that dig into details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible related.